0: After reflecting on last week's message, I think we should have titled it the Imagination Station. Here's why we started off the message saying, hey, could you imagine if you were Jesus and you came back from the dead? That's a preposterous thought. Uh, But we also talked about this. Imagine a world where unbelievers were anxious to hire, vote for, work for, work with, and live next door to Christians because of how well we treated one another and how well we treated them. That quote is from a book that I plan on adding to the growing stack of books on my nightstand that I've yet to get to, but I desperately want to read. And in light of the age of division that we've been living in, uh, love is often viewed as the unfortunate choice for those who are too cowardly to engage in the culture war. And so that quote gripped me to the point that I have to read that book, or at the very least, I'm gonna add it onto my <laughs> nightstand. And leave it there for months. The reason that that scenario has become so hard to imagine is this is why. When the culture wars ramp up, people who disagree with us are no longer viewed as the mission field to be loved. But instead, they become the enemy that needs to be destroyed. And contrast that with the love of Christ that the world calls us to live out the message of Jesus Christ. And when we become skeptical that love can really change the world as it once did, then what happens is we begin to doubt that truth, then sinners become resented, not loved. And here's the problem with that. In John chapter 4, we clearly see Jesus's love for sinners. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, your phone, your tablets, and turn there this morning. Now originally, we were going to look at the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today, but when our pastors got together to look over the text, what we realized is it would have been a Pretty short message because basically here's what it said, love's the greatest because it endures forever. And so that would have been a really short sermon and I know that how much you hate short sermons. And so instead of following up a message that defined love, we're going to follow it up instead by a message that illustrates love displayed. And for many of you this is a familiar passage. If you've been in church a long time, Jesus encounter here in John 4, the woman at the well is a familiar passage. But, but there's the danger in itself. That sometimes when things are familiar, we treat them as common. And so this morning, we're going to look at a fresh look and see the heart of Jesus here in John chapter 4. Now, let me set you a little context this morning. We're going to look at verses 7 through 19. But before we get there, if you could go back and look at the beginning of the chapter, what you would find is this, is that Jesus is passing through Samaria when he encounters this woman because he's leaving Judea and he's heading for Galilee. Right? So that's what's going on geographically in the text here in John chapter 4. And the reason that he's leaving Judea, according to verses 1 and 2, is because the self-righteous leaders, the Pharisees, did not like the fact that Jesus said that everyone is worthy of the love of God. And so as he began to preach the gospel, the gospel of grace, and they were trying to enforce the law, uh, Scripture says in verses 1 and 2 that he started to get even more influence than John the Baptist, And so they're furious at him. He's disgusted at them. And so he's walking away from the self-righteous people, leaving the area and encounters this sinful woman here in Samaria in John chapter 4, right? So let's pick up the text in verses 7 down through verse 19 this morning. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And so the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the wells deep where do you get that living water? I don't think she's catching on yet. Right, At this point in the story, she doesn't pick up what he's dropping here. Okay, so, so here's what he says. Woman said to him, "Where do you get the living water?" Verse 12. And you're greater than our father Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, "Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again." The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I love how this exchange wraps up in verse 19. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, uh, if I were paraphrasing verse 19, here's how the exchange went: Hey, you're a pretty smart feller, right? Like you've got some insight here into my life that's pretty revealing here. And, and so last week in this incredible exchange, we see Jesus model what it looks like to love people who are far from God. Last week we saw love defined in 1 Corinthians 13. This week we're gonna see love displayed. And, and what you see in this passage that what's displayed for us is this is that Christ-like love does not set boundaries of exclusion. In other words, it does not say I'll set my love and affections on these people or these class of people or those things. It loves without exclusion. Now, if you're like me, you know what I've discovered the longer I live life? I've discovered the world will be a lot better place. If everyone were more like me. Is anybody else like that in the room? Right? The reason that people are hard to love is because they're not like me. And if they were more like me, the world would be better. They'd be easier to love. And we all understand that. But here's what we know to be true. That even with the people in our, uh, of the same last name as us, they're not even like us. Right? Sometimes people say, Why? Well, I, I just kind of think, you know, kids are kids. Kids are kind of all the same. You know what I know when someone tells me that? You've only got one kid or no kids. Right? Even the people with the same last name as us aren't exactly like us. And the reason that it's easier to love people like me is here's why. This is true of me and this is true of you. Because at heart, I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisees weren't mad that people were becoming more like Jesus. You know why he's leaving there in verses 1 and 2. They weren't mad. A Pharisee's never mad that people are, are becoming more like Jesus. They're mad that people weren't becoming more like them. That's the heart of a Pharisee. The truth about all of us is that's the natural bent of our hearts. And modern day Pharisees have a hard time loving people who do not see the world like they do. They're not more like them is what a Pharisee always says. And so that's the truth of all of us. That's the bent of all of our sinful hearts. And That's why the gospel doesn't just save us from our sins. It reorients the affections of our hearts. And remember the context here. This display of love for this Sinful woman is precipitated by Jesus in verses 1 and 2. Walking away from the Pharisees. Leaving the self-righteous religious crowd. Not in fear, but in disgust. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Here's how we know we're getting it wrong. We try to love people like Jesus. Here's how we know when we're getting it wrong. We avoid sinful people to associate with other self-righteous people. And here's Jesus doing the opposite. Leaving the self-righteous crowd, verse 1 and 2, and says to get away from the Pharisees. And walking towards and embracing relationally and offering grace to a sinful person. And so this woman is astounded. She's astounded. The Pharisees would have never engaged. Listen, Jewish people would have never engaged a person like her. They would have stuck together with self-righteous people, not walked away from them towards sinful people. So she's astounded. And here's the thing. Their hatred of this woman and her kind was so open that even she asked this question in verse 9. Look what she says in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealing with with Samaritans. Now, this woman would have had an impressive ray, uh, resume for the title of Most Unlikely to Be Loved by Jesus. I don't know if there was a Samaritan high school, but if there was in the yearbook, she'd have won the award, Most Unlikely to Be Loved by Jesus. There she would have been, front page with a crown and a sash on. She would have absolutely been the least likely candidate to receive the love of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? We don't have appreciation for the cultural background. So let me tell you a few things. Number one, First of all, she was considered unworthy of love by the Pharisees because of her ethnicity. Jews hated Samaritans. The Jews referred to the Samaritans with derogatory term, half-breeds. And here's why. To explain the origin of the Samaritans, we've got to take a little trip back into history and understand, go back to the days of kings, all right? So stick with me because I'm going to learn you something, okay? Due to some of the unwise actions of King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, in the 10th century, there was a split or a division in the nation of Israel. So they became a northern kingdom and there became a southern kingdom. So the 12 tribes split into a group of 10 and a group of 2. And the northern kingdom was still referred to as Israel. But the southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. And each one of them had their own kings. Now, here's the bad part. All of them had wicked kings for the most part. All of them rebelled against God. So both kingdoms, separate kingdoms now, devolve into uh, corruption. And and God would over and over, out of his great love for them, would send prophets. And here was the message of the prophet. If you don't repent and turn back to the one true God, then God's going to allow conquerors to come in and overtake this city. And that's not going to turn out well for you and so over and over we would see that message of the prophets and the people hated them but guess what they were right and in 721 BC the northern kingdom of Israel fell under the conquering reign of the Assyrians in 586 BC the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians but the northern kingdom of Assyrians conquered in 721 and here's what happened this is why the Jews hate the Samaritans many of the people of Israel ...were led off to be captives of Assyria. But some of them remained in the land and intermarried with the Assyrians. These half-Jewish, half-Gentile people became known as a people group called the Samaritans. And so here they are, this mixture of already spiritually corrupt Israelites... ...intermarrying with pagan Assyrians. And what they did is they created a religion for themselves... And they would tell the Jews, hey, we're actually the true descendants of Judaism. And, and they uh, delegitimized the Levitical priesthood. They said the Jerusalem temple is not the right place to worship. This is the new place of worship. And so they had all these things. And so the Jews thought, man, th- these people are heretics. But then the hatred of the Samaritans by the Jews really ramped up. Here's why. When Jews returned to rebuild Jerusalem, they were opposed by the Samaritans. And so the Jews are saying, not only are you teaching heresy, not only have you said the Levitical priesthood is no longer legitimate, not only are you saying the temple is no longer the right place, not only did you intermarry with these pagans, but now when we come back as God's chosen nation to rebuild the temple, to worship the one true God, you're opposing us. And so for the self-righteous Jew, the barrier that had been culturally built to hate Samaritans, listen to this was actually endorsed by God from their perspective. Here's what they would say. We hate you because God himself hates what you stand for. That's basically what's going on. Now, we hear that, and under the banner of grace, we're thinking, who in the world justifies that, that thought or that statement that, that we hate you because you hate what God stands for? Listen, it happens when we cannot or more accurately will not Show love to people who we think are opposing what God stands for. Here's, here's how it sounds. I cannot love someone who stands opposed to God because to love them is to show love for what God hates is that line of thinking. All right? So that's how that goes. And can we just be honest? Where that mostly gets fleshed out is in the realm of partisan politics. Am I right? Well, I, I can't love you because you don't love the unborn, so, so God's against you, so I'm against you. I, I can't love you because you don't love the poor and God loves the poor and so... I can't love you because you don't love that's how All that plays out. But I want you to listen closely, all right? I'm going to say this slowly for once in my life, all right? One of the surest ways that you have made God in your image is that God just so happens to hate the same people that you hate. One of the surest ways that you have made God in your image is God just so happens to hate The very same people that you hate. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that some of you are like, hey, I don't don't hate anyone, Pastor. I'm I'm a Christian, and, and I don't hate anyone. Let me remind you, to actively withhold love from anyone is a sin as well. So it's not just openly hating someone. It's withholding love from someone is actually a sin as well. And so not only was this woman a Samaritan, they said, hey, we hate you because God hates you. Right? God hates the same people we hate, basically their argument. Not only was she a Samaritan, she was a woman in a culture that did not value women. The world that Jesus entered discriminated greatly against women. And every encounter with women Jesus had, he elevated their value. Anytime someone says, well, I, I'm, I'm against Christianity because Jesus didn't elevate women. Listen, mark it down. That's a person who's never actually read the Bible. Jesus stepped into a culture that devalued women and elevates them in every Encounter. He affirmed women by his manner, his example, and his teaching. Jesus included women where Jewish piety excluded them from all the worship activities. Women were excluded from participation in the synagogue worship. They could, they could watch, but they couldn't participate. They were forbidden to enter the temple beyond the court of women. Scholars call that outer court the gossip nest. Amen, right? Funny, I guess. I'm sorry. funny. Offensive. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. They had to stay on the outside. They couldn't participate. They had to watch. A woman was not to touch the Scriptures, lest she defile them. Listen, a man was not to talk with a woman, even his wife, and to talk with a woman in public was yet even more restrictive. And yet here's Jesus in this encounter. With a Samaritan woman, he doesn't walk away from her, he walks towards her. He brushes aside all that discrimination and is willing to love who the religious crowd says is not worthy of God's love. And Jesus walks toward her. Now, you think, well, I don't don't know if it was that big of a deal, you know, that she was a Samaritan or that she was a woman. I I don't know that, maybe you're over-exaggerating that to make a point. Listen, go down to verse 27. Verse 27, this is his disciples, the people who should know better, right? The people who've watched him model love. The people who've heard him teach. And what's verse 27 say? Just then, when he's encountering this woman, just then his disciples come back. Listen to this. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. And so not only was she a Samaritan... And not only was she a woman, according to verse 18, she was a sexually immoral one. verses 16 through 18, it describes her conduct. We'll get to that in just a minute. So so let's just call it like it is in this passage, all right? From the Pharisee's perspective, she was a half-breed, second-class tramp. And therefore, not worthy of of being loved by God and accepted by Jesus. Because of her class and because of her conduct, she deserved shame and condemnation. But to love people like Christ is to love people without boundaries or exclusion. Secondly, Christ-like love offers people what they need, not what they deserve. One of the principles of inductive Bible study is observation. And careful observation is essential because we read the Bible too quickly and at kind of too cursory of a level. And in doing so, uh, we miss some important details, especially on passages that are familiar. Like, oh, I've, I've read the story of the woman at the well. I kind of know this. I'm going to read through this really quickly. But guess what? When we do that, here's an important detail of observation that we miss out on uh, in this passage in verses 13 through 14. Now, remember who this woman is culturally? Verses 7 and 9, she's a Samaritan. We not like them. She's a woman, second class. She's immoral. Stay away from her, right? So that's this person's class. And if we cheat ahead to verses 16 through 18, we see her conduct. And so sandwiched in between the description of her class, 7 through 9, and her conduct, 16 through 18, spoiler alert on her conduct, she's not been spending her free time going to prayer meetings. And so culture says, well, you're not worthy of redemption. You're a Samaritan woman. And conduct is going to show us she's not worthy of that either. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Tucked in between verses 7 through 9, a description of a woman who culturally is not worthy of the love of God and her behavior in verses 16 through 18 who says her conduct is not worthy of God. Look at what Jesus offers her in verses 13 through 14. Look at verse 13. What's it say? And Jesus said to her, and the order this is in the text is, Is not a small thing. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so do you see what's going on here? Jesus is not ignorant of her class. Verses 7 through 9. Jesus, who's God in the flesh, who knows all, is not ignorant of her conduct in verses 16 through 18. But despite being aware of her class and despite being aware of her conduct, Jesus does not offer her condemnation. Jesus first does not offer correction. Jesus first offers her himself. And he says, hey, this is what you Deserve, but I'm going to get you what you need, which is the love of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And listen, if you drink of this living water, it will satisfy your hearts. You'll never thirst for satisfaction again. Jesus offers her Himself before he offers her correction, before he offers her condemnation. Now, I'm gonna let you in a little secret. I don't know if you know this or not. Do you realize this? You and I don't have the spiritual authority to condemn anyone. Did you know that? I've tried before, amen. Right? <laughs> I've tried. I don't have the authority, though, to condemn someone, to change their standing before God as condemnation. And Jesus does. And yet he doesn't offer her condemnation. What does he offer? Himself. Jesus had the ability to offer complete, perfect counsel and correction. And he will. But before he does that, in verse 16 through 18, he offers her grace in verses 13 and verse 14. To put it another way, He told her of the living water before he told her that she deserved the lake of fire. And so so what's he saying? He's saying, hey, I know who the Pharisees say you are as a Samaritan woman. And I'm aware of your conduct to the point that you don't even know that I'm aware of it. But before I offer you correction and counsel, I'm going to offer you myself. He so said, I want you to know that grace is available for you despite your class, verse 7 and 9, and despite your conduct, verses 16 and 18, grace is still available to you in me. He didn't offer moral advice as the starting point. He offered her himself, and that's very important because that's the mistake that judgmental Christianity often makes over and over. Listen, if we offer people correction instead of Christ, all we're doing is making sure they're more informed on their way to hell. That's it. I want you to listen closely. People don't need a better set of morals. People need Jesus. You ever people say this? Well, I just look at the world, what's going on around us, and they mean this in a literal way, not a slang way. I just think the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know what the answer for that? It's not a better set of morals. It's Jesus Christ. You know why? Because holiness, good morals, is not the way to Jesus. Jesus is the way to holiness. Intimacy with Jesus always precedes obedience. And the problem with offering people correction apart from Christ is that what we're teaching people is that they need to get right before they've even been made right in Jesus Christ. We're offering them law when what they need is grace. We're promoting moral reform instead of spiritual regeneration. We're promoting sanctification to people who've never experienced justification. If you're listening, say amen. We're telling people who are slaves to sin to obey when they literally have no capacity to do so. We're expecting them to walk in the Spirit when they're still dead in their sins. Now, here's the reality. There's only two outcomes that type of legalistic teaching and counsel. Two, that, that's it. To tell people to get right before they're made right, to clean up your life morally before you can experience a grace relation. There's only two outcomes of legalism, all right? Here they are. Number one, it produces guilt and shame. People are told what they should be doing, and yet because Christ is not in them, they have no power to actually obey that. So the only end result is guilt and shame. Here's the standard of morality. You need to live up to this, and apart from Christ, there's no hope of doing that. So the only outcome is you're not good enough. Something wrong with you. So that's outcome number one. The second outcome is we produce Pharisees. Proud of their outward morality. I'm such a moral person. But yet inwardly far from God because of their self-righteousness. Now, let me lean in a little bit on something in this arena that I've observed from 20 years of pastoral ministry. All right? Moms and dads. Grandmas and grandpas, quit lecturing and shaming your adult kids about them getting in church and start talking to them often about the deep love Jesus has for them. There's nothing magical about getting in church. You know that? Listen, God can send you to hell from a barstool or the front row of the church. What people need is to be overwhelmed by the deep love that Jesus Christ has for them. Why? Because the Bible says this it was the kindness of God that led us to the repentance, not the shaming of family. It's hard to be wooed by a Jesus that loves me deeply when he's only represented by family that shoves me or shames me repeatedly. And you know what happened if your kids should be in church? Got overwhelmed with the deep love that Jesus has for them. You know what happened? The natural overflow of loving Jesus, according to John 14, 15, is obedience to Jesus. And when you say, hey, you need to get in church and be obedient, and they've not been overwhelmed by the love of Christ, the only outcome is guilt or shame or a Pharisee. That's it. You say, do people do that? (laughs) Listen, I can't count the number of times someone has marched an adult up to me. I'm talking people older than me right and I, listen I don't care how old you are you're still afraid of your mom and dad amen march up preach or introduce to my kid you, you'd never know their mind they'd never walk here they're raised better than that but kid wouldn't even look, look down 50 years old you know not going to talk back because they still want to happen on the way home praise God right Your kids that need to get in church, you know what's going to put them in church? And they become overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ in their life. No one's ever been shamed or scolded into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus comes into contact with this woman who deserves condemnation. Who deserves to be corrected for her behavior. Verses 16 through 18 And what he offers her instead, despite what she deserves, he offers her what what she needs, an encounter with Jesus Christ who changes people from the inside out. He says, hey, I know who you are. You're a Samaritan woman. And I know what you've been doing. In spite of those things, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, correction or condemnation. I'm going to offer you me, myself, before he offers her correction. When we get caught up in the culture war and fail to love people like Jesus, listen, it's tempting to offer people condemnation and correction and never offer them Jesus Christ. So Christ-like love doesn't exclude its boundaries. Christ-like love gives people what they need, not what we think they deserve. The third attribute in this passage of Christ-like love is that it's not the absence of truth or accountability. And listen, this is the great fear of culture war Christianity. That an effort to love everybody will end up being an endorsement of everything. I can't tell you how many times people looked out and said, can you believe people acting like that? Yes! Yes! Yes, I believe people don't know Jesus, aren't representing or following him. Yes, I totally believe that. And we look out, those, just, those people got to be miserable. Actually, they're having fun. What do you say about sin all the time, if it's not fun, you're doing it wrong. Right? And what we're afraid is we just start loving everybody, and that's an endorsement of everything. Listen to me. Unconditional love is not the same as unconditional affirmation. If you've got kids, you love your kids, can I let you in a little secret? Your kid's a sinner, right? They're going to do some things you don't approve of. So you're not uh, approving what they're doing, but it doesn't diminish your love for them. Listen to the Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to this truth. God commended his love toward us. That's unconditional. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That shows I don't affirm of your sin, I don't accept your sin, as evidenced by the fact that I had to die to atone for it. What's Romans 5? It's the gospel. God loves us unconditionally while at the same time recognizing he could not universally accept our sin to the point that a sacrifice had to be made on behalf of it. And so love people unconditionally while refusing to affirm their choices universally. Listen, that's a picture of the gospel. Now let's just be honest. If you're in a Bible teaching church, there's going to be a tendency to be heavy on truth and correction and light on love and compassion. If you're in a liberal church, you're not, by the way, all right? Let's make that clear. There's going to be a tendency to be heavy on love and light on truth. Theologically conservative churches can talk about repentance at the expense of grace, and liberal churches can talk about grace at the exclusion of repentance. And listen, here's what I've learned. Both sides are going to feel self-righteous about it. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is the perfect mixture of grace and truth. That when he loves people, it is the perfect mixture of grace and truth. He offers this Immoral, second class, half-breed, living water of eternal life in verses 13 and 14. And then he calls her to repentance in verses 16 through 18. Look at verse 16 through 18. What's it say? Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him and says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you have now, the guy you're living with, he's not your husband. What you have said is true. So so listen, can we disagree? Jesus is not soft on sin. When you read the gospels, Jesus talked and taught more about hell than he did heaven. Later in the book of John, the woman who's caught in literally in the act of adultery, Jesus offers her grace, but his final words to her were what? Go and sin no more. The problem is not with Jesus when it comes to grace and truth. Listen, the problem is us. Depending on your personality type, you're going to gravitate either more towards the grace end of the spectrum in dealing with people or more towards the truth end of the spectrum. Depending on your spiritual gifts, you're going to drift on one of the spectrum. Listen, if you've got a strong Gift of mercy, you're going to drift towards the grace. If you've got a strong mix of prophecy, which is not predicting truth, it's proclaiming truth, you're going to be heavy on the truth side. Now, let's just see how self-aware we are. If you're natural bent in dealing with people, especially people who are far from God, listen, if your natural drift is toward the grace side, raise your hand up and just keep it up. Like, you just, I'm toward the grace side, raise your hand up. All right, listen, everybody look around. Hands are up. Those of your hands aren't up. These are the wishy-washy people you pray for. Amen? (laughs) Right? Now, I'm a little afraid because not a lot of hands are up for the first one. If you drift towards the true side, would you just raise your hand up? Good night. Welcome to the Pharisee temple this morning. Amen? (laughs) Raise it up. Keep it up. Listen, grace people, look around. These are the people that you're praying would repent and be kind. You'll just have to trust me because you're afraid to make eye contact with me. Amen? There's some hands up. Here's the reality, though. Christ-like love, it requires both. It requires both. Now, I want you to listen closely. Here's why. Repentance is the dam that releases God's grace. And what precedes repentance is confession. The word confess in the Greek, it literally means to agree with God. And what precedes confession, grace people, close your ears, is confrontation. No one confesses sin until they're made aware of it. Now, confrontation of truth can come from the word being preached or taught or shared. It can come from other people. For this woman, it was all the above. Jesus is the word made flesh. But even in his confrontation of this woman's sin, listen, Jesus is motivated by love. He wants her to realize what a great gift of grace he's offering her in herself in verses 13 and 14 before he condemns her and calls her to repentance. He wants her to value the physician once she feels the seriousness of the disease of sin in her life. Now, is it possible that this woman had had five husbands who had died? possible. It's not likely because Jesus would not have brought that up if she's just a widow who keeps getting remarried because there's no prohibition against that. So why does Jesus bring it up that you've had five husbands? Not because she's been a widow and been remarried. That was fine. But because she was guilty of adultery and all these exchanges. If it was just about a widow being remarried, listen, he could have left it out and just pointed to her current live-in boyfriend. Side note, people say I don't, the Bible doesn't say anything. Listen, Jesus is clear about his feelings regarding people living together and the assumed activity of it right here in this passage. I don't think it's a big deal, people living together. Listen, Jesus did. He calls this woman and he says, hey, this guy you're with now, that you're living with, and what's going on? It's not your husband either. But divorce in their culture was not done for incompatibility or what we would call irreconcilable differences because women were a second class citizen they just endured it they just stuck it out so here's this woman a serial adulterer guilty of fornication with her current live in boyfriend and Jesus knows that to love her well is not to excuse her sin it's to call her to repentance and so he addressed it now why is that to love someone well here's why Because apart from addressing her sin, she would have never came to repentance. And apart from repentance, she was never going to experience the transforming power of his grace. And so what culture says is the most loving thing to to sin, to condone it, to look away, to not say anything about it, is actually the most unloving thing you can do. You know why? Because apart from addressing it, there's no confession. Apart from confession, there's no repentance. Apart from repentance, guess what? There's no opportunity for people to be transformed by the grace of God. Now, how do you know when you're ready to confront someone in their sin? We're almost done, so listen, this is really important, all right? How do you know when you're ready to confront someone in their sin? Here's, here's how you know. You don't want to. You ever been around that legalistic Christian that's just a little too excited to share with you the sin they've been noticing in your life? What a blessing they are, amen? Right? But you don't want to, Why? You love them so much that you don't want to say something you know it's going to be hurtful to hear, but you love them too much to leave them to the consequences of their sin. So by faith, you step out into Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, which says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you're a grace-oriented person, you're like, oh, I just want to overlook that. Listen, love people enough to not leave them in their sin. If you're a truth-oriented person, don't get excited. Don't be a Pharisee. And so Jesus, to love her well, doesn't look over her sin. He addresses it and calls her to repentance. Now we're almost done. So here, here's what happens. So what happens in the culture war and you know, the world rounds going to hell in a handbasket? We got to do this. We got to do that. All those kind of things. What happens? We love people with the love of Christ. It's a mixture of grace and truth. What happens? What happens is culture starts to change collectively when hearts are changed individually. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse thirty-nine. Look at verse thirty-nine. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you're like, because they're predestined, that's not what the text says, all right? Because of her testimony of a person who loved her well enough to give her grace and truth, she came to faith in Christ. And because of that testimony of the Christ like love she experienced, it says many people in that town. Became followers of Jesus Christ. You know what happens when people start becoming followers of Jesus Christ? They start valuing the things that he values. You know what happens when a lot of people start valuing the things he values individually? Culture changes collectively because all culture is, is a picture collectively of what's going on in the hearts of people individually. It's a recorded fact of history that crime and immorality goes down when revival shows up. It is a recorded fact of history that when revival shows up, Crime and immorality goes down. Here's why we should love sinners instead of getting angry at them or for not embracing our values. It's because in this passage, you may have heard this today and encountered this passage. You may have thought, "Oh man, I didn't realize that I'm, I'm a Pharisee. I'm like the Pharisees in verse one and two that Jesus is walking away from." And you may hear this exchange today and say. I mean, I don't get it right, but for the most part, I do try to love people that are far from God. So so not not perfectly, but I try to be like Jesus. I I kind of represent and identify with Jesus in this passage. Maybe maybe you're like the disciples in verse 27. That when church people start investing and hanging out with sinners, you wonder, why are they talking to him? Why are they talking to her? So maybe you feel like I'm the Pharisee, or I'm Jesus in this passage, or or I'm, I'm like the disciples. But listen, make no mistake. Make no mistake, and then we're done. If you've encountered the saving love of Jesus Christ, then in this passage, make no mistake, you are the half-breed, second-class tramp. Your classification as a sinner and your conduct of sin were worthy of condemnation, and yet Jesus offered you grace, not as an excuse for your sins but in spite of them. And once that gets a hold of your heart, love will replace anger for sinners and compassion will replace contempt. In a world filled with division, let's be united in the belief that loving people like Jesus did really will change the world. Would you bow your heads this morning? If your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, have you experienced the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? This passage reminds us it doesn't matter what your background is, where you came from, what your last name is. What your family legacy is. It reminds us that this, your conduct doesn't matter. That despite those two things, Jesus is offering you today the living water of himself. That if you'll repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then today you can become a child of God. You can be saved right now, right where you're sitting. Would you pray right now? Would you confess before a holy God that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness? Would you declare that Jesus Christ died on the cross, His payment from your sins was buried and rose the third day, and today by faith, would you receive Him as your Lord and Savior? Would you do that right now? You can be saved right where you're sitting this morning. Maybe you're here and you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time, but when you look around the world, it's hard to not get angry. Maybe you long for the days that have passed when the country was more moral. And if you're here and you say, you know what, I'm having a hard time loving people like Jesus did. I'm having a hard time not being angry at them. I'm having a hard time walking towards them because I think they're a part of the problem. And you've come to a place today where you realize that, hey, When Jesus found me, that was true of me as well. Unworthy of his love, and yet he rescued me. And so if that's you this morning, would you just pray right now? Would you say, God, help me to love people that left to myself, I don't want to love. Help me to show compassion towards people instead of contempt. Help me to walk towards people who are far from you instead of away from them. Would you pray that right now? Would you pray right now, God, even this very week, put people into my path who desperately need to experience the love of Jesus Christ, even this week? Would you pray that right now? God, I pray that we would look at this passage and realize there's no one who's outside the love of Jesus Christ. And the God, for some people, the only love of Christ they're going to experience is not inside the walls of a church. It's through our lives and our interactions with them. And so, God, help us to love people who are far from you. Help us to believe at the depths of our convictions that the love of Christ will change the world. Help us to be reminded that society doesn't change collectively until hearts are transformed individually. Help us to live with the remembrance that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. God, whatever results come for revival, we trust you to bring that. We pray all that in Christ's name.